Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, privacy as a human right. Even on a day-to-day basis, most people don't necessarily think about privacy. When you're in a crisis, we're going to think about privacy differently, especially in an acute situation where we might decide to find, say, our lost brother or a lost family member. We will have a different notion of what constitutes personal information in that minute. And so we might be more willing to share that. In this week's episode, amid the growing scandal over Facebook's use of personal information, we'll examine how the humanitarian field is grappling with ever-changing technology and increasing reliance on data and personal information. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, April 19th, 2018. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Amy, last week, Mark Zuckerberg went to Capitol Hill to testify about Facebook's use of personal information and made the revelation that the private consulting firm Cambridge Analytica obtained the personal data of tens of millions of users. The scandal drew fresh attention to one of the most pressing issues of the 21st century. How can we protect our privacy when we are willingly or unwillingly giving vast amounts of data to companies like Facebook, Google, or Amazon? But those tech companies aren't the only ones using personal information. This kind of data is also at the core of the work of international agencies delivering humanitarian aid, whether it's after a natural disaster or in a refugee camp. And that's the focus of today's episode. My name is Dan Skarnakia, and I'm a researcher with the Signal Program on Human Security and Technology here at HHI. Dan Skarnacki is part of a team of researchers at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative devoted to advancing the safe, ethical, and effective use of information technologies during humanitarian and human rights emergencies. The roots of the Signal program date back to 2010 and the crisis in Darfur. At the time, actor George Clooney gave a million dollars to Nathaniel Raymond, now the director of the Signal program, and Isaac Baker to track atrocities being committed against South Sudanese families. Raymond and Baker used satellites to track the movements of Sudanese militias, which in turn could be used to build evidence of war crimes. At the time, it was the first use of civilian satellite imagery to monitor such atrocities. Raymond and Baker ran that program for 18 months, but they eventually stopped the program out of concerns of how this imagery might be used. They felt they couldn't contain all the externalities, um, sort of the, the... potential for causing harm to civilians on the ground they felt was too great um, because they, of course, as they were were publicly releasing imagery, they were uh, anonymizing it and doing their best to anonymize sort of where it was coming from. Um, But they couldn't guarantee that they would be showing imagery that had anything, everything identifiable to, you know, somebody who, who is local. Uh, And so they felt that the risk to civilians on the ground, both, um, you know, aid workers, but also uh, the local population was just too great. That eventually led to the creation of the Signal program, which focuses in three key areas. Tools and Methods, which focuses on designing and scientifically testing tools and methods that remotely collect and analyze data about humanitarian emergencies. Standards and Ethics, which aims to develop standards and professional ethics for the responsible use of technology to assist disaster-affected populations. And Mass Atrocity Remote Sensing, which, as we touched on a moment ago, involves analysis of satellite imagery and other related data to identify remotely observable forensic evidence of alleged mass atrocities, as well as issues like famine. And an emerging area is populations and mobile technology, which specifically looks at how mobile technology is changing outcomes for refugees worldwide. Recent research in this area looked at Syrian refugees in Greece and found links between access to mobile phones and a reduced risk of depression. Crises in general are happening in places where people had pre-existing mobile access. I mean, Syria 
is one of the first uh, real sort of clear examples of, of um, a population that had not just cellular access prior to the crisis, but they had mobile 3G internet. Um, and understanding what that means is going to have a large impact on how we respond to crisis in the future. And, and of course, how we think about the information agency of, of these populations. They are using these tools and understanding the impacts um, that interventions related to those tools have and that those tools themselves are having on both the population and the crisis is sort of critical to a um, meeting their needs and ensuring that their rights are being protected. And data is now being widely used in a variety of humanitarian settings, from natural disasters to violent conflicts. Dan touched on the use of remote sensing earlier to collect information. And humanitarian workers on the ground are now using tablets to conduct so-called needs assessments during crises. We need to get an understanding of what's going on so that we can communicate and talk to people so that we can bring things in. But there are also broader uses of information. For example, there is a growing movement of cash as aid where people are given digital cash, either linked to a credit card or in someone's phone. And in some cases, the aid is directly linked to a person's identity using biometrics. So when they go to receive their money, they'll have to use an iris scan to verify their identity. While these developments are promising, they are more cost-effective and efficient. Skarnecki and his colleagues are concerned that these open the door to violations of rights when it comes to privacy and data. For example, as more personally identifiable information is collected, the risk of identity theft increases. Their solution? Something called the signal code. The code has sort of represented the it's represented the first step in really articulating. Okay, there's some rights from rights extend obligations uh, related to the you know to the population, and from there we should start talking about minimal training, ethical, and technical standards as um, as it relates to the use of of different technologies to populations. The Signal Code represents a human rights approach to information during a crisis, and it identifies five human rights related to information. Those rights are the right to information, the right to protection, the right to privacy and security, the right to data agency, and the right to rectification and redress. The goal of the code is to provide a foundation for the future development of ethical obligations for humanitarian actors and minimum technical standards for the safe, ethical, and responsible conduct before, during, and after a disaster strike. Skarnakia says that because technologies are always emerging, the code aims to outline a basic set of standards regardless of the changing digital landscape. So my background before I came to the Signal program was in the life sciences, and obviously that's a different space where there's a very strong regulator. But um, you know, one of the things that I, I sort of always like to bring up as an example is until about 10 years ago, um, maybe even more recently, the most common type of data uh, breach in the life sciences was somebody walking out of an office with paper files. So in, in, a, in a way, what we designed this to be is it, we're, we're thinking about it, in sort of, of course, in the context of changing technology and digital technology, but it is meant to be technology agnostic. Um, we, we see the need um, now because uh, these information, you know, new information technologies are really just they're increasing the volume and the speed by which you can collect and process data. You know, that being said, you know, when you read through the, the, the five rights that we've articulated, a lot of those rights are applicable across the board. Um, and, it, you know, in terms of technology, your data collection could be on paper and it would still apply. Skarnecki says the signal code now forms the basis for much of the work he and others in the signal program are doing. For example, they're currently consulting with the International Organization for Migration to develop a document spelling out their obligations to those that they're serving. 
And he says at the end of the day, the signal code is an important reminder that they have a duty to protect and care for those affected by crises, whether they're refugees or survivors of a natural disaster. Skarnecki says it's also important to think about how notions of privacy change in these situations, especially among people who are in a particularly vulnerable state. Even on a day-to-day basis, most people don't necessarily think about privacy. When you're in a crisis uh, or in a conflict zone, um, one of the things that we have, as humanitarians, have to really take into consideration, and, and any of us really have to take into consideration when we think about privacy, is that we're going to think about privacy differently, um, especially in an acute situation where we might decide to find, say, our you know, lost brother or a lost family member. Um, we will have a different notion of what constitutes personal information in that minute. And so we might be more willing to share that. Um, now, that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if there is a clear need uh, to be collecting that information and uh, you are consenting to offering that information in a crisis that might make sense to use that information. But then we don't want to treat that as blanket consent to use that information going forward for other purposes. So it's very, very important to think about the A, consent, and B, um, ensuring that that's sort of a time-delimited consent because we are we have to recognize that this population is particularly vulnerable. They're also thinking about personal information differently than they would be in normal circumstances. So they might be willing to share information with us um, because they are in extremis. And um, when, when they do that, there is a, both a duty to them and I think there is a sort of a, a, rela- a trust-based relationship there that we have to, to consider and remember. Um, and remember that when they are no longer in this situation, they are going to think about that data and that privacy um, differently. Just as our notions of privacy may change depending on our circumstances, the types of harm that data can cause are also changing. Earlier in the podcast, Skarnecki talked about the concerns surrounding the use of remote sensing imagery or the risks when biometric information is tied to humanitarian aid. But new threats are also emerging. In a remote part of Afghanistan, a U.S. military outpost. That's a clip from a New York Times video on a story that made international headlines a few months ago. It was revealed that a heat map posted online by the popular fitness tracking company Strava could be used to track the location and reveal the identities of military personnel and others working in war zones or other sensitive locations. That includes those working in humanitarian settings. Researchers at the Signal program were actually able to identify names and daily routines of foreigners working for aid agencies and the UN in Somalia. Skarnecki says the Strava story highlights the dangers of so-called demographically identifiable information. It's something he and others in the humanitarian field have been looking at for a while. But what happened with Strava put new attention on the issue. It's one of those privacy things that a lot of people don't necessarily think about because it doesn't really affect you on a day-to-day basis. And what it is, so we normally think about privacy in the context of personally identifiable information. Um, So we don't like to share things that can easily re-identify us. What DII is is saying that there are ways to identify a demographic based on aggregated information or information that you might not consider personal. So in the case of the basis that we saw uh, on Strava, we weren't look- you weren't looking for specific individuals. All you had was these aggregated data points uh, in the middle of the desert and some satellite imagery from Google and a little bit of knowledge about, well, there's really no reason for anybody to be there who's using this tool 
it is most likely then U.S. service members or um, another, you know, a, a military outpost of some sort at the very least. Um, and so that is enough information then to start identifying that community. In the case of Strava, it would also have been possible to take that demographically identifiable information and then use it to personally identify people. But Skarnecki says it's not even necessary to cause real harm, especially when talking about vulnerable groups. If using, again, non-personal data that's out there publicly, um, you can re-identify, say, the location in a camp where all the unaccompanied children uh, are or where the, all the young unmarried women are. Then you have a, an entire vulnerable community that is put at risk, and you may not necessarily be targeting individuals if you're somebody who's looking to cause harm, say if you're looking to recruit child soldiers um, or traffic young women. All that really matters to you is the demographic and where they're clustered. Um, and so if you can do something like that, um, you've already potentially um, found a vector by which to cause harm, and all that information was publicly available because that is not necessarily something that has been, till now, really understood to be a privacy risk. And that is what makes the work that Skarnecki and others are doing so difficult. There's no catalog of all the harm that can be caused by improper use of data, simply because new technologies or methods of data collection and aggregation are always emerging. There's also the issue of lack of data. We mentioned earlier that one of the tenets of the signal code is the right to rectification and redress. But what if you're a refugee and you go to collect aid, but you're not in a particular database? What happens then? Skarnecki says the humanitarian sector is still grappling with the best ways to handle data, especially when it comes to displaced people on the move. We are adopting technology very quickly, but we don't necessarily have um, the skills in the sector to really implement it properly. So you're either relying on outside vendors um, or you're implementing things and they may not there might not be clear standards for sharing data across your organization and you know in the humanitarian sector in particular um, budgets are tight uh, and so a database might be an excel spreadsheet on a server underneath someone's desk and that doesn't mean you know a there are security implications to that especially if uh, you're just using a password to protect the spreadsheet but there's also that data might be siloed and so it might not readily be merged with data says, oh, yes, this individual in such and such a place also is entitled to, you know, this. And even though they share common registration numbers in both, both databases, if the databases aren't, aren't linked and talking, you might not necessarily know, um, or this person might not be in this database, even though they're supposed to be, um, you might not be providing them with everything that they're entitled to. And it produces inefficiencies on the responder side and clear harm on the, the recipient side. And that idea of agency over your own data is important, whether you're a refugee seeking aid or a Facebook user concerned over use of your personal information. The challenge, says Skarnecki, is companies like Facebook and Google have such a wide reach that they've essentially become utilities. It's hard for any one individual to really take control of their data. And that's compounded in a crisis when people may be more willing to share information to help themselves or family members. That's why groups like the Signal Program have to speak openly about the potential harms of misuse of data and private information. It's not about changing individual habits. It's about changing how large organizations think about our personal information. Information is power, but I think it's also agency. I mean, we're talking to you. Know, we're talking about uh, populations in a lot of cases that that have lost quite a bit, um, and you know, ensuring that they both have some access to you know the information that gives them an identity uh, is, I think, 
profoundly important in both in terms of, and, and this, of course, has not been scientifically validated, but I, in my personal opinion is really important in terms of um, you know, their psychological well-being. And, and my colleague Danny's work will, uh, over time, I think, is starting to bear some of that out, at least when it comes to, say, depression. What that does eventually is it will, um, you know, as it you know, trickles out of the academic literature into sort of mass, uh, sort of mass understanding, um, is, is it does sort of provide a clear set of, of milestones for these companies to live up to if they want to be trusted. And so when you're an individual in a crisis setting, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say what agency you have related to, say, one of these particular companies. We, I think, have to be very cautious as large organizations that are coming into sensitive political climates or just simply disaster areas where people are very vulnerable that to remember that people that, that people have rights um, and that their use of information and technology really I mean we should be thinking about it just in the same way we would at least be thinking about it with populations in a non-disaster environment with all of the rights that those uh, that, that that the rest of us have in that non uh, sort of extremist situation. Well, just because they're a vulnerable population doesn't mean they've waived those rights. Skarnecki has as a key goal of the Signal program going forward is to make sure that the research they do is connected to humanitarian workers on the ground so that they can implement best practices and standards and ethics when it comes to privacy and data. If you want to read the Signal Code or learn more about the work of the Signal program, visit our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify.